One of um, the Buddha's most, I think, beautiful teachings is Lokadhamma, the way of the world. And he said that we're born into um, a world of pain and pleasure, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and joy and sorrow, that, that we can't avoid those, that it is the way of the world. Um, so when you hear those, you know, which ones do you like, <laughs> right? You know, it's so interesting when we experience loss. It's like, oh, you know, if we experience gain, we usually like it, right? It's like gain, loss, pain, pleasure, pleasure, pain. You know, we know it can fame, disrepute. It's like, ah, oh, the shame. The shame of disrepute. The Buddha gave a whole army of Mara to the desire for fame. Amazing. Joy, sorrow. You know, and sometimes I just like to whittle it down to this vast range of joy and sorrow that we're, again, we're born into. If you have incarnated, it is the way of the world. And I think a lot of um, the practice is really moving from like a deep attachment to the easier side, the easier way of the world, you know, um, navigate it, but also um, be interested in it. Not only for ourselves, but the person sitting next to you in the room, or the person, your neighbor somewhere, or you know, like it's like it's that sense that it's that the fulfillment of remembrance is also understanding that it's the way of the world for everyone, all beings. When I was, um, for a long time when I was young, <laughs> it was a, lot, a series of years, I was quite sick. And I was born dead. So I, um, as in later years, I kind of got philosophical about it. But, <laughs> you know, in actual fact, I was still alive, right? You know, that's the bottom line. Um, and uh, there was a certain point where I had the opportunity to find some report cards when I was older from elementary school. And um, the number of days I was absent was extraordinary. I mean, it was, I could, it shocked me. It was like, <laughs> it was something like 145 days, you know, first grade, 100. And then it went down, though. So it was like 125, second grade, 118, third grade. But just phenomenal, right? And it kind of sparked a memory in me when I saw that, this gradual decrease um, 
in illness, uh, but so much of it still. Um, I was not a natural in math. And so I was able to fake it and compensate with everything else, but math, man, by fifth grade, you know, the teacher started expecting me to be able to reduce fractions. I, I know they, they're probably more advanced nowadays, but I would just be like, I can't fake this one. I had no idea what she was talking about, and um, she had no empathy whatsoever for uh, the illnesses I had <laughs> or this amount of school. And something in me just shut down to math. I mean, it was over. Um, you know, but I didn't want to you know, flunk out. So I kept kind of trying to memorize things, but I never understood it. It was, and sometimes I look back at that even still, and I, I got through Algebra 1, Algebra 2, and Geometry without, I didn't understand any of it. It was amazing. And so, um, you know, then you have this thing about, you know, you got to have to qualify to get into college, and... um <sighs> You know, any of the courses, your fourth year in high school, you know, I wouldn't have made it. And I knew it, so, uh, but I had to take one. So they offered this class called Senior Review Math. And I thought, well, I better try that. (laughs) But I was dreading it, you know, I just, I was just dreading it. Um, And at least in my school, the, the math teachers, you know, they weren't, from my sense of things, um, they seemed to only be able to teach the kids that were really good at math. You know, that was just also it. It's like if you didn't have even a remote aptitude, they kind of didn't make a lot of effort. That was just my school. So um, I walked into class my senior year, and we had a... um, a man from Italy, he had just moved from Italy. And he um, went up to the chalkboard and very passionately he put this big problem on the board and I just, my heart just started sinking. It was like, it looked like algebra too, you know. <laughs> it was like, but just he was very passionate about it. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd never seen a math teacher like that. And he turned around and he went to the side of the board and he looked at all of us and he went, Look at that beautiful problem. <laughs> you know, and we were all kids who like couldn't do math, right? You know, that were trying to get into college and we're all like, "Wow." You know, just like we were stunned and he started crying and he said it again. He's like, "Cuz he wasn't get he he wasn't getting much connection with us yet." You know, we were just <laughs> you know, we were just like who's this, you know? (laughs) And he was like, look at that beautiful problem. And it was just like, wow. You know, and it took him a lot to get through to us because we were all the kids that had totally shut down and totally disconnected. And you couldn't have gotten a better person for us. I mean, it was like, Unbelievable. And I'm not even saying that I learned tons more math, but I enjoyed it and I, I had an openness to it. And, you know, I, it was like um, one of the best teachers I ever had. And it wasn't just um, his love 
for it. But he had a great kindness. You know, it was like it wasn't, you know, when, you, when we heard, look at this beautiful problem, he also tried to connect with us. Like, and he could see, you know, that we had been so broken down by it. You know, it was very wonderful. Uh, and I think that when we look at our own life, and we look at the loss of faith that we have. It's a very similar thing. It's like if you can just find a part of you that can go look at the <laughs> look at my beautiful problems. You know, it's like look at look at this problem of life. Mortality, you know? And then it's like that that pleasure pain, gain loss, vain disrepute. Joy, sorrow. You know, it's just like, can we get interested in it? And I think often we get into it, interested in it um, by some kind of tuning into some kind of kindness. If we receive kindness, we can usually receive life in some way. So I wanted to just say again, it's um, what we had all felt in that classroom in those initial moments was like a felt experience of connection. And we wouldn't have been able to maybe articulate it, but it was his connection to math. But it was also his connection with us. That's what usually will make an amazing teacher, right? It, you know, it's just like there's some quality there that um, isn't just going to tune into the people that are the naturals, which are usually in anything one in a <laughs> five thousand. You know, it's 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 not. Um, then what are they doing? It's not like they're teaching, right? Much. So hopefully this idea of Vipassana with a loving-kindness flavor, the kindness flavor, it's like hopefully it gives us this permission to explore. Like a deep deep permission to explore life just as it is. And without that, like, incessant, like, comparing... Not, not that the comparing won't come up, but I mean that buying into the measuring, the comparing. And I think that um, often toward the end of a retreat, we're the most vulnerable to that. It's amazing. And I think it, it's sort of interesting when you get a, a taste of wisdom <laughs> and these tastes of kindness. No matter what, there there might come a point where we like ask ourselves: Am I? Do I really want aversion and attachment to run the show? Like, do I really want them to drive the car? 
Not really. <laughs> I think my mother was a hundred percent blues. You know, there there really wasn't much else going on for her. Um, but she did it <laughs> fully. Uh and she kind of lived in the basement uh, at night. Uh, and she played um, certain records over and over again. And one of them that she loved the most was Billie Holiday. And it was, um, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <sighs> you know, and I heard that a lot. You know, and it's beautiful. But if you hear those words, it's like powerful, right? Because it's very much like this practice. Can you be in the present moment once? Well, that's it. It's like, what are we dying to? It's like that that need to be in the past, the need to be in the future. But that willingness to, that thing of not knowing what's going to happen and just be there. It's amazing. And we know that quality of spaciousness and quiet and connection, we feel it a bit and it's like, oh. (laughs) It's wonderful. And then it's like, (laughs) that just being, that quality of just, I love to just play with it because it's so amusing or tragic, you know, how how short it really is that we can really do it. You know, that's that's a lot of my practice at certain times. It's just like, okay, let's see. <laughs> you know, it, you can't even look at the watch and come back. You know, it's just so quick that that we hate vulnerability. We hate it. And it's amazing to see that sense of like, again, that quality of trusting that if you taste it for a little bit or taste it for a while, and then, of course, that what we call ego or I will assert itself more. It's like, no, I'm in charge. <laughs> I'm in charge. Wait a minute. I'm in charge. And it's, that's just the aversion, the fear, the attachment again. That's all it is. So what we call the personal self is really just these temporary moments of identification with aversion or attachment. Because you see, if the identification goes, it's just aversion. It's just fear. We can connect with it. It's no problem. It's when we're caught in it that that would be a translation of the ego asserting itself. And we've said this a lot, but, you know, I just want to repeat it, that we have to have the most, um, I would say, holy, reverent relationship to resistance. It's it's just to that vulnerability. It's, It's been our protection.
seems like a while ago, but way back in um, when I was working at at Insight Meditation Society in um, seventy eight, there was a teacher from Sri Lanka named Bhante Sivali that came through for a while, and at the time, nobody knew he was ill. And he, you know, I think I had probably a couple of days off. And I think it was 79. Yeah, it was 79. Because my back had already gone out really badly. And um, I had three days to sit. And I went in for an interview with him. And I was really having a hard time with this pain. Um, And I just told him how hard it was. Um. And little did I know that he, um, a few weeks later, he, had, he, he flew to Hawaii soon after that interview, and he died like a week or two later. And you would never have known that he was having any trouble. Uh, so I was sitting there telling him about this pain and how I couldn't work with it. And very kindly, just super kindly, and just very sweetly, but he said, oh, you mustn't be afraid of the pain. And whenever things are really painful, usually that, that sound of, and that, those words will come to me. It's like, oh, you mustn't be afraid of the pain. That doesn't mean that I might not move away from it, but it's just that, I had that, it's like a lighthouse, you know, it's like a reminder sometimes when it gets too hard that, you know, you don't have to be afraid of it. <laughs> you can move away from it. So we can have um, anxiety about the pain, right? Um, or we can be mindful of discouragement. But I think that in this life, if we take our life rather than, you know, one little segment of our life, what's so important again and again is that sense of, like, what's our motivation and what's freedom. Because for me, this this lower back pain that started then and has been off and on, you know, I, but it, I could give some examples of some <laughs> chronic emotional stuff that is actually probably quite related. Um, but similarly, when they both started kind of becoming exposed as I practiced more, um, with the things that were the hardest, it was always... Um, when am I going to get rid of it? It's just that that whole mind state is is usually around something chronic, and my lower back, the the lower back pain, is a complete litmus test for if there's freedom present or not. So always the question is, how is your relationship going to be when it comes back? If it comes back. We don't know. But with anything, what, what is our relationship going to be with it if it comes back? Because this back pain has disappeared for years. 
and then it's like something like this last month that really hit hard again. It hasn't hit that hard since 1979. It was like, oh, you know, I, I thought it was never going to come back that bad, right? I thought I got, you know, a little bit rid of it. It's just so funny, right? But of course, I'll just say, oh, yeah, of course, you know. And then uh, if I really need a little help, I'll say, oh, yeah, the Buddha had back pain. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's usually, you know, the last, you know, plan C with it. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I call it the bad back club. The Buddha, me, and <laughs> whoever else wants to raise their hand. But one time I was reading some text, I don't remember what it was, and there's a, a certain types of, of karma, kama, karma that um, is with you through your life. And that was the Buddha's back pain. So full enlightenment doesn't, doesn't mean we're not human. It doesn't mean that we don't live out the karma. And that's always been really helpful for me, you know, just that sense of like, oh yeah, you know, people tried to kill the Buddha. <laughs> it wasn't like he was free from gain, loss, pleasure, pain. Etc. Joy, sorrow. He had this evil cousin. You know, I mean, these stories are so important for us to remember. You know, that's kind of a betrayal, yeah, to have your cousin trying to knock you off. Might have been some jealousy there. So something chronic for us is, um, what's wonderful about it is it's our best teacher. Because you just can't fake it. You can't fake um, unconditional acceptance. It's unconditional. And that's been always my um, deepest understanding of the things that are difficult for me is actually they're the, my best teachers for if my acceptance is conditional and unconditional or unconditional. One of the things that I would say I'm utterly sure of is that as you go through life and practice, you know, that the direction um, will go in the direction of humility. It just, it just, if it isn't going in that direction, something isn't um, seeping in deeply into the system. And hence, you know, I wanted to go over a few things in relationship to that. So when Suzuki Roshi was dying just before he died, and he said, I don't want to die, that's humble. This was not what people around him thought freedom was. 
they had a whole idea of what you should be like when you die and how horrible, right? It's like if we had, you know, it's like the hard part about endings like now is that we're going to be trying to control the next few days, right? It's like, it's so, well, that's why it's painful is to see that fear come up. And a lot of it is around, you know, if you look at it, we're trying to get the best deal. We're just, we're trying to avoid as much unpleasant as we can. And we go over it again and again. And it's like, after a while, it's like, ah, I already planned this. Don't make, you know, don't make me plan this again. I'm going to, you know, the fear makes us plan it again. You know, it's like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> and, you know, we forget that underneath it, it's just that we have missed that we can connect with the fear. And we don't like to admit that I've been practicing this long and then we're like at the end of the retreat and, you know, why can't we batter that into oblivion? But instead of going, of course I'm feeling this way. I, of course we are. That's why transitions are um, difficult. We're more vulnerable. We can't nail it shut. So if we're trying to figure out how to how we're going to die right at the end, wow, you know, because we're going to all do it differently. I hope I don't don't do it as extremely as my dad, but you know, I might. Who knows? You know that expression. I think it's Dylan Thomas. Do not go gently and what is it? Do not. Pardon? <laughs> right, do not go gently. Do not go gently. Rage, rage, rage. Well, that was, my dad really got that one down, you know, and it was like amazing. And But I have both sides of me. I do, you know, rage, rage, rage against the dying, right? And then I have the side that's like, oh, just peacefully surrender. You know, it's like we. It's important to know that that side that Dylan Thomas expressed so beautifully there is in us. And it's okay. And if you let that come through, you know, you, you, that's what you surrender to. You surrender to that not wanting it, not wanting to die. I remember... Um, this teacher I was close to in Hawaii, Kenroshi, who was so much older than me, um, and he was so much older than his students. Um, one time, um, he decided to join in with the group uh, to not be quite as separate, and they were going around for the first time. It included them, him, and they were talking about their most profound kind of experience during the retreat that had just happened. Uh, and this was a big deal. You know, the, this was at the time when, you know, people were trying to change things a bit and have the teacher be a little bit more human. And um, So there was a great build-up to this moment where Aiken Roshi was going to say what was so profound for him. Um, and they went around and he said, um, a good night's sleep. And, you know, this group of people, I know them, they were so angry again. It's almost like the Zen people <laughs> have this bad, you know. It's just like they wanted them to say something about, you know, deep, 
emptiness or compassion. And, um, and this woman wrote a little story about it in a book, Susan Moon, and she said, you know, and then she hit her 60s. <laughs> and I was like, right, a good night's sleep. It's so profound, right? You know, it's like, and it was so funny for her because she, you know, it was like that, not even remotely getting it. You know, it's great, right? That just that he was so honest, he was so humble. It takes a lot of guts to be that humble. And there are so many interesting examples of this um, in the lineage we're in with Mahasi Saito, um, who was known to be fully enlightened. He had a, um, a, a just a massive stroke that took him out. And uh, the moment before it, he said, Oh, a new sensation. I love that. I'm sorry. I think it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a new sensation. Bam, he's gone. You know, it's so cool. You know, new sensation. That's how, like, present he had been. Just like, and no problem. Oh, a new sensation. <laughs> it's so great. It's so clean, yeah. There's a Sayado in um, Burma named Ujodaka, um, you know, who's who lives a kind of reclusive life most of the time. And he said something to me, I think three years ago. I have only seen him twice, but he just said, uh, mindfulness makes me so joyful. I want to be mindful until I die. Yeah, it's so simple. Suzuki Roshi said in the book Beginner's Mind, nothing exists but momentarily in its present form and color. One thing flows into another and cannot be grasped. Before the rain stops, we hear a bird. It's so momentary. And I think that we tend to, um, even when we think deeply or don't think that deeply about anicca or change, there's a way in which um, change can be soothing. Yeah, it's like the petals in the garden falling. You know, there's a, there's like a. Um, in this book on Saigyo, his poems, which is 
a very old book, but the introduction describes this sense at the time that he was in Japan, where um, when he was growing up, that there was a relationship to change, but that it was capable of being anticipated and therefore almost comfortable. It, it was called the soft interpretation of change, a gentle change. Um, and that that kind of way of understanding change had a feeling tone of keeping threatening things at bay. That change is constant but avoidable. Oh, you know, like there's that petals falling. But um, then all these things happened in their country, in Japan, and it was like there was this whole new way of describing change, which was the hard interpretation that changes can be sudden, radical, or disruptive, violent, right? Like an earthquake. Uh, And so that I think that um, you see how that affected his poetry, because it was a change also in politics there. Uh, And I think that we we have, you know, lived through... um, if you live long enough, you tend to live through different ways that that manifests. You know, that it's almost like you can take refuge in change when it's the soft way, but it's actually really hard when it's that radical, disruptive way. So they call it in the introduction, change by rhythm or changed by rupture. And um, this is not Saigyo, but it's an anonymous poem. um, To learn how to die, watch cherry blossoms, observe chrysanthemums. Because I do think, you know, if you go out in the garden and you have stayed through the birth, life, and death of a tulip. It's powerful, right? Birth, life, and death of a breath, birth, life, and death of a tulip, you know, birth, life, and death of an earthquake. You know, it's like birth, life, and death of fear or anger. Whether it's like a a sudden disruptive change or a very um, discreet, subtle change. It's learning how to be with both, right? That lokadama, joy, sorrow, pain, pleasure, etc., gain, loss. And one of one of the things that I just so appreciate about being with being th- with everyone through the retreat is just to watch this gradual resistance to this melt. in spite of ourselves, you know. <laughs> you just put yourself through it and put your, it's like being in an incubator. And we know like you come in and it's like that resistance, it's it's just exhausting and it's so heavy. Uh, and then you start seeing that the times when something, you know, just opens and has that spaciousness with something, it's like oh, that weight, that weight goes. Thank <sighs> you.
and this process takes so much patience. You know, it just, it just, um, sometimes we'll feel like a butterfly, sometimes we'll feel like an elephant. You know, sometimes we feel like an inchworm. I know last year when I was on retreat, uh, I was walking up the driveway, and um, I spent a long time with an inchworm crossing the driveway. It took hours. And that's where I felt in in my life. (laughs) It was like, well, yeah, that was really slow. (laughs) You know, it's... And there were so many times, you know, where I just wanted to pick that inchworm up and put it at the other side. And I trust these things when when I'm on retreat, like what being I tend up bumping into a lot. I bumped into an inchworm almost every day on that retreat. And it was like, you know, duh. (laughs) Yeah, I was really stuck in this place. And it was like, gotta just live it out I haven't figured out why I kept running into praying mantises this last retreat but oh I can't even tell you I didn't know they came in such different shapes and colors you know and it was just kind of like whoa another praying mantis <laughs> you know, it's like who knows I haven't I haven't really figured it out but it it's um hmm very sacred being to the Bushmen in Africa. They're, mo- they're most sacred beings, so I think that was significant. This is from a book called The Mother, Archetypal Image and Fairy Tales by Sybil Berkhauser Ori. Again and again, we learn that it is precisely the mistakes people make and the difficulties they experience, which force them to develop in ways they would not otherwise have chosen. And I think this is so important for us, you know, whether it's ourselves with ourselves or ourselves with others. It's just to keep, we should, we should remember this every day. Again and again we learn it it is precisely the mistakes we make and the difficulties we experience which force us to develop in ways we would not otherwise have chosen. And there's so much room for forgiveness in that. Forgiveness of ourselves, forgiveness of others. We're 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 here to learn. You know, and it, it's like this, you know, we need so much reminders. This is um, from Srina Zargadatta Maharaj. Somebody asked him, how do you deal with people? I love that. It's like, <laughs> that's the problem, right? How do you deal with people? And he answers, why make plans? And what for? (laughs) He said, such questions show anxiety. Relationship is a living thing. Be at peace with your inner self and you'll be at peace with everybody. Human relationship cannot be planned. 
it is too rich and varied. Just be understanding and compassionate, free from all self-seeking. And how much we want to plan it. We, you know, how about the conversations that we have? You know, it's amazing. <laughs> and when we repeat the same one, it's the same thing. It's like, wow, you know, you just wish you could get another channel. You know, it's, it's just amazing, again. And, the, you know, there's, there's like... Sayadaw Ulakana died this year, well, this past year, I think, right around this time. And um, so many of us who were involved there really wanted to go to the um, ceremony, the funeral. Uh, but it, Jesse and I and Greg Scharf, Rebecca Bradshaw, we were all teaching it in Massachusetts. But um, Stephen and Jake Davis could go. They were free to go. Um, and when... Um, it was very, very moving for them, you know, just thousands of people coming for this cremation. And it's, you know, fire. It's not like you send the body somewhere like we do and you get the ashes. It's like you you see the slow burning of this body. And what was most profound for them was that Everyone that we know there, all our relationships, everyone was asking, are you still going to come back? That was the most important thing. Interesting, yeah? And we thought, oh, maybe they don't want us to come back because Sayadaw has died, you know, but it was the opposite. It was like, please, please come back. And when, you know, I was on retreat that year before he died, so um, I wasn't there, I didn't see him um, that that winter before he died. Um, But he was getting sick, so he had been told he was going to die soon, in January during that retreat. So he told um, Steve and Jake, uh, and when he told them, Steve looked really, like, concerned. You know, he just was like, oh. And um, Sayadaw said, oh, don't worry, Stephen. I have total faith in my karma. And don't you wish we all could say that? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, Wow. I'm kind of sharing some of these things that some of these beings have said, but that's awesome, right? That's why we practice.
there's these three feral cats you've heard about. I try to restrain myself and not talk too much about them. <laughs> this is restraint. Um, and uh, <laughs> so there's the mother and the two daughters, and um, one of the daughters is so terrified, but she's hungry. And it, you know, when you look at like her pace of change, it's almost imperceptible, like this pace of change of sort of kind of maybe getting a little bit more relaxed. Because it really does feel like, you know, when you, when, you, when you open the screen door and she's out there, it really does look like, you know, you're just a total weapon of mass destruction. You know, that's how she looks at you. Like, and, you know, you kind of hope after four years that maybe she'll, like, look at you a little different, you know. <laughs> but just, like, maybe there's a little change. Um, and so last year when I was in retreat... Um, well, you know you're on retreat and you can project all this stuff onto a being. <laughs> well, I had this whole idea that, you know, she was like beyond lonely. You know, like, you know, she had no friends and you know, it wasn't visible anyway. And she certainly, um, at that point, this year, like it's gotten so that she can make eye contact once a day for a second before she like runs away terrified. So that's, that's progress. Um, but the year before, she wasn't like that. Uh, and again, I was going through this whole thing about, oh my God, how lonely she is. And um, one night in the middle of the night, I went outside in the dark and had a flashlight. And I came out along this little sidewalk, and I looked at her, and she was sitting next to this um, bufo. Um, this is like a big toad. We call them bufos in Hawaii. Um, she's just sitting next to this bufo, and it's like they're best friends. I mean, I, I, I was just amazed, you know. And I, I kind of walked away a little, and I just hung out there for an hour. They're just sitting there, like, you know. And I just—it's so cool, right? How life is. It's like I had this huge thing going on in my head about it. And it just vanished. It's like, well, what do I know, right? We have this whole thing. I was quite happy for her <laughs> that she had this friend. Um, but I just think that if I hadn't been on retreat, I would have never seen that. Doubt, I mean, very doubtful, highly doubtful. You know, I would have just, if I did go outside, I wouldn't have noticed it probably. Or, you know, I wouldn't have spent an hour there. I would have been convinced I had to go back to sleep so I could function the next morning, right? We get into all this stuff. and uh, But again, it's like I was so happy for that connection. For her. They looked quite content. This is from Saigyo. This is his little introduction. At a point in time when I was feeling desolate, I heard the voice of a cricket very close to my pillow. At that turning point with my head 
for the last time, pillowed in sagebrush. I'd have this chirping insect still be what's closest to me. I'm going to read it again. Just it's, it's. At that turning point, with my head for the last time pillowed in sagebrush, I'd have this chirping insect still be what's closest to me. And somehow for me, I, I feel like um, for those of us who hear crickets and then you can feel autumn and then winter coming on and you hear those last crickets, right? And then there's just one cricket. Uh, and then you know the sounds are going to be gone. So that night I, I was out with the bufo, the very large toad, and the little feral cat, uh, and just with them, being there with them for a, an hour or so, whatever. Um, that That sense of just that quiet abiding with Or right now in this hall, it's like you can, you can just taste that, just that simplicity of a quiet abiding with, you know, knowing we're all sitting here. And is that enough? And what happens when it isn't enough? You know, what is that um, trusting, like that learning to trust that quiet emergence of whatever, (laughs) you know, moment by moment? And, you know, just as the flavor in the hall right now, is there a little uneasiness with it, right? Because it's not the same routine as, well, you know, you come in the hall, then we know it's going to be quiet, and then the bell rings. It's like, is there, is there a way that we can just remember this, whether we're in the bus or in the grocery store or, you know, in line here 
even when we're really hungry, you know, when you're waiting in line for the food or whatever it is, it is just that, like that, that we can really make space for the unknown to thrive. Making space for the unknown to thrive. It's, it's, um, it's just a quality of being with. So if lonely comes up, it's a quality of just being with the loneliness or fear or boredom. <laughs> one of my favorite poets, Galway Canal, he was fav- one of my favorites because he was a contemporary, um, died last year. And uh, so I wanted to read one of his first poems. It's called First Song. Then it was dusk in Illinois. The small boy, after an afternoon of carting dung, hung on the rail fence, a sapped thing, weary to crying. Dark was growing tall, and he began to hear the pond frogs all, calling on his ear with what seemed their joy. Soon their sound was pleasant for a boy listening in the smoky dusk and the nightfall of Illinois. And from the fields, two small, bo- two small boys came bearing cornstalk violins, and they rubbed the cornstalk boughs with resins. And the three sat there, scraping of their joy. It was now fine music the frogs and the boys did in the towering Illinois twilight make. And into dark, in spite of a shoulder's ache, a boy's hunched body loved out of a stock the first song of his happiness. And the song woke his heart to the darkness and into the sadness of joy. Think about your first song in your heart that will probably be with you through your life. And it often will have that attempt at that expression of that vast range of joy and sorrow. Pleasant, unpleasant, pleasure, pain, gain, loss, fame, disrepute. It's just that attunement to Lokadhamma, the way of the world. and finding that joyful interest in it. Hopefully we never totally kill that. Let's sit for a minute. 